welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. <laughs> Jewel. <laughs> We're in the presence of greatness, guys. Uh, not only not only greatness, I'm also a little like, you know, um, the old adage of like a fear of God, like it's a fear, but also a respect. That is how I feel right now. <laughs> Not to be sorry, Father Brad. This is I mean, this sounds sacrilegious, but this is the feeling I have. It's an awe. It's a feeling of sublimity, you know. And we have always said like, oh, we're so excited to have our guest on today. We're super excited <laughs> to have our guest on today. This for the record. We joining us today is the reigning, reigning. mental samurai. Yes. Heather Hurley. Hello, Hi, Heather. ladies. How are you? <laughs> Heather, oh my God. We are you have made our collective day. It's I we're so excited to have you on. It's great. And Heather You're, has been like a listener from very early on, which Yeah, and a ridge. A, a wonderful supporter of the podcast. And mm. we're so happy to have her. Absolutely. I really think of myself as here as a fan. I am equally in awe of both of you. Oh, I consider stop. myself like one of the OG supporters. So the honor is all mine. We should have, you know what I was thinking? We should have like a fan name. You know how Rihanna has her army or Navy. I'm sorry. Rihanna has her Navy and Gaga has her monsters. We need to have like a name for our for our tens of listeners. For, for there are tens of us. <laughs> <laughs> but once it goes viral and we get a hashtag and yes. merch, that is the way to go. It's yeah, true. That's how it goes. It's true. Oh, Heather, do you want to um, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, please. Sure. Uh, my name is Heather Hurley. I am the reigning Mental Samurai Grand Champion. That is the most recent of my game show appearances, which makes it sound like I've made a whole career out of them. There have been three. So let's not get too excited, everyone. I Before I w appeared on Mental Samurai, I lost on Jeopardy, or I came in third. So, you know, they're not all highs. Sometimes there are lows. We all um, lose on Jeopardy eventually, Heather. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more losers than there are winners. And I uh, so I'm, you know, in esteemed company there. But um, yeah, big into trivia. My day job is working at the Library of Congress here in, in the D.C. in Washington, D.C. Um, because I love civil service and also reading and also office work. So being a bureaucrat <laughs> at a library for the government is just the trifecta of all those things coming together. What a great yep. Venn diagram right mm -hmm. there. Totally, totally. Um, so that's that's the day job. But the uh, the Heather Hurley after dark, if you will, is <laughs> trivia, learned league, pub quizzes, game mm. shows, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the one good thing about being in quarantine or being in lockdown is that you can still get a lot of trivia online. Mm -hmm. So that a lot of like online pub tri trivia and stuff has been helping me out a lot and also reading books and, and, and watching TV. But then that's making me sound not so smart. So let's just say I read books and do pub trivia <laughs> all the time. Hey, you know what? There's just as many trivia questions about TV and movies. So uh, uh, watching TV is also, you know, taking in information and trivia. So it's totally fine. I'm, I'm just, I'm a connoisseur of knowledge in all exactly. of its forms, right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. As are we. 
So you're in good company for sure. And so Heather came to us with an idea for a topic that we have never covered before because we don't know anything about it. Absolutely not. (laughs) So this is really the best way for everybody to learn is from people who are passionate about a topic and who actually know a lot about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. So uh, take it away, Heather. Thank you, ladies. So, so, I mean, I think we're all missing different elements of our lives from the before times, right? Some people are really missing sports or eating out or going to the beach. I miss performances. I, I like to think of myself as a little bit of a patron of the arts. I love going to the theater. I love going to author talks. I love going to orchestra concerts. I mean, like when Misinformation does the tour of the country and comes to do the live podcast in D.C., I'm going to be the first first one in line. I cannot wait until that day. That's just one of those things I love to do. From your mouth to God's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So, So in anticipation of that future time when we will all again come together to see musical performances and awkwardly figure out whether or not we're supposed to clap, I would like to present a misinformation guide to classical music. Before we really dig in, what what is your exposure or your experience with classical music? This is not a judgment-free zone. I'm just trying to set a, a baseline of where you guys come to it from. Um, okay. My mom will just listen to classical music as like the background of her house all the time, sitting in a room reading, hanging out with the dogs, whatever. Like okay. classical music is just always on in her house. Okay. Um. Growing up, my parents had like a 12 cassette set from Victoria's Secret before it was Victoria's Secret. It was a class. It was like the best of classical music. So it was like there was a whole cassette about Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And then there was a whole cassette on Bach. And and we would listen to that in the house every so often. So that was apparently it was called like Victoria's Secret Classical Classics or something <laughs> lines i swear to god victoria's secret sold classical music at one point in the late 80s early 90s that woman contained multitudes (laughs) really so many secrets (laughs) um also in heavy rotation when i was growing up was the big record of hooked on classics Mm. which still like to this day every now and then i'll i'll like hit that on spotify because give me give me like the flight of the bumblebee with like a disco beat (laughs) under it you know Oh, also, also Looney Tunes. That's oh, basically yeah, of it. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Kill the Wabbit, Barbara Seville. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, it, it's possible that you like know more about it than you even realize from things like that, especially if it's in the background of your consciousness growing up from cartoons or your parents or mm-hmm. whatever. You've got some awareness. So there may be things that I talk about or music that I play today. And you're like, oh, I know what that is. I've heard that. But I'm hoping to sort of connect some dots for you. Perfect. Um, my, my own baseline, I started playing piano in the fourth grade and clarinet in the sixth grade. And I went to schools that were very technically rigorous about performing and learning all of the theory and all of that stuff. So I've been kind of singing and playing and gallivanting for crowds for a while. Um, so I come at it both as a performer and as a student and as a fan of classical music, but I, I will caveat that with, you know, that, that adage that doctors are the worst patients. I feel like musicians are the worst audience members mm. because it's really hard to shut off that part of your brain that's thinking about how you would play a piece. Oh, okay. and, and just you, it's harder to, like, enjoy the performance and not be judgy. Like, I find myself turning into a little Randy Jackson and be like, oh, a little pitchy, a little pitchy. <laughs> As Dog. I say that, yeah, to the professional musician on the mm-hmm. stage who's doing things I could never even think of doing. I'm like, oh, yeah but I think you might have missed one one note there so that's just that's just I, I think something that every musician does to to some extent even if you're no matter how good you are and even if it's a mm-hmm. understandable um, I'm going to tackle this in in two parts so in the first part I'm going to give you an overview of the orchestra so that if you find yourself going to a concert for some reason you know what's going to happen what to do what to expect then in the second part, I'm going to give you kind of a Cliff's Cliff's Notes version of classical music history. So you understand a little bit about what you might hear at that concert that you're mm. going to. I'm going to give you like context of in a different era, what a concert um, or what a composer was like thinking about, what the trends were in music, who some of the heavy hitters were at that time. Um, so that when you're at the concert and you see maybe a familiar name or the name of a classical era, you're like, oh, I know a little bit about that. Or, I mean, like, if you find yourself in conversation at a cocktail party with a fancy person who's all, you know, oh, yes, do you prefer Beethoven's fifth or sixth symphonies? And then you can say, well, more of a Debussy fan myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't wait for that moment. (laughs) And then they drop their leather glove, like, on the ground in, you know, shock and... Yeah, then their monocle falls into their brandy snifter, and you have had the last word. Oh, I love it. I love that. But really, I mean, there have been so many great misinformation episodes about art that have taught me lots of things about art. I am trying to return the favor when it comes to music. So that that's kind of the the spirit with which I come to, to misinformation today. Thank you so good? much. Yes, yeah. we're so excited. I, I cannot wait. Well, let's dig into part one, which again is sort of an overview of the orchestra. So let's say you get invited to an orchestra concert. One of the first things that you might ask is like, what exactly am I going to be looking at when I sit Mm -hmm. down in this room? Because the word orchestra can mean a lot of different things. With orchestras, there are two broad distinctions based on size, chamber orchestras and symphony orchestras. So a chamber orchestra is smaller. They're based on the concept of fitting into a room or a chamber. So how Mm. I think of it is I picture an episode of Downton Abbey, right? They're in a ballroom, everyone's dressed up, and there's these group of musicians in the corner playing like a waltz or whatever. Mm -hmm. Boom, that's a chamber orchestra. It's, you know, generally smaller. They're in tuxedos. They don't always have to be in tuxedos, but it's a smaller group that can fit into a room. 
And that is in contrast to a symphony orchestra. And you imagine a symphony orchestra when you think of like an, a traditional orchestra concert in our time, right? right. Hundred mm-hmm. people, dozens of instruments. These are groups that are designed to play a symphony, which is a type of music that we'll talk about in a bit. But that's where they got their name. So this is the kind of orchestra that you'll hear about cities having, right? The mm-hmm. I'm from Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, the mm-hmm. Boston Symphony Orchestra, etc. So if you go to an orchestra concert today, you're probably going to be seeing a symphony orchestra. Mm. Great. Great. Two other words you might hear to describe an orchestra, and they are descriptors rather than classifiers, are philharmonic and pops. Let me talk a little bit about each of those. Philharmonic just is a descriptor to differentiate a specific performing group from the quote-unquote symphony orchestra. So using um, Milwaukee as an example, there's a Milwaukee symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to start like a rival West Side Story orchestra to say, (laughs) like, I'm taking you down, MSO, I might call it the Milwaukee Philharmonic, just to make it clear that I'm not the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. That slot has already been taken. Mm -hmm. My group is the Philharmonic. So it's not a type of orchestra. It's just kind of another word that people put in there to make it clear. I'm not the actual symphony orchestra, the OG symphony, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Philharmonic, also one of my favorite voice actors from The Simpsons. Hey, Very good. (laughs) And the word pops just means that the group plays so-called popular music. So that Mm, could be anything from show tunes, movie music, like orchestral versions of Beyonce, whatever. It's just another descriptive word. And sometimes the quote unquote symphony orchestra becomes the pops because on that night they're playing, you know, Jurassic Park music or whatever. Or like on 30 Rock when Tracy Jordan pays the orchestra to just play the Sanford and Son theme song for four hours. (laughs) I want to be that level of rich, <laughs> right? Oh, that's the dream. To commission just, you know, like Schitt's Creek inspired music <laughs> in celebration. Yeah, exactly. In a symphony orchestra, the instruments are arranged into four families or sections. Um, the general arrangement, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the audience, is that the strings are going to be in the front, and the strings are violins, violas, cellos, double basses. Then behind them is going to be the woodwinds in the middle, and woodwinds are flutes, oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. Behind the woodwinds, you're going to have the brass, which is trumpets, French horns, trombones, euphoniums, and tubas. And then in the very back is the percussion, which is kind of all of the other stuff. And also like the keyboards, the harp, the random things that we couldn't fit in the traditional configuration. And like side note, as a performer who played the clarinet, so again, woodwinds are in the middle and behind is the brass. Brass are freaking loud yeah. and they enjoy that. <laughs> and so I'm still bitter about, you know, like the high school trumpet player who sat behind me blasting in my ear every day at rehearsal. And I sometimes think to myself, where is that person now? And are they mm-hmm. just still droning on over <laughs> other people, either with their instrument or in spirit? But that's, mm-hmm. that might just be me being bitter. That might be a gripe on behalf of woodwinds everywhere. I, I cannot say. I, I'm glad to hear it, that there is also some, there's tensions in the, uh, in the orchestral world as well. There are 100% petty rivalries. Yes. I mean, like, that's mm-hmm. true in every workplace. But, you know, when you bring music into it, that doesn't just class the join up automatically. <laughs> There's still just a lot. Mm. 
So within each section, instruments sit together. So within the string section, like all of the cellos will sit together. Within the woodwind section, all the flutes will sit together. And this arrangement actually dates only to the 1920s and is known as the Stokowski shift after a guy named Leopold Stokowski, unexpectedly. Mm. Um, he was a Philadelphia conductor. And before him, the, the differentiator was that the violins, the first violins and the second violins would sit on opposite sides of the stage. And I'll talk in a minute about what first violin means or second violins. Mm. But they would um, sit opposite each other on uh, different sides of the stage because in a lot of classical music, there's sort of an interplay between those two parts. And for whatever reason, people thought it would be interesting to have music on one side of the stage interplay with music on the other side of the stage instead mm. of right next to it. Like a tennis match. I guess so. Yeah, sure. there's something sort of innately like interesting to human nature to just go back and forth. <laughs> back and forth. So a brief word on first violin versus second violin or clarinet or whatever mm -hmm. instrument. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with skill, especially at the professional level, because everyone in a professional orchestra is really, really good. Mm -hmm. The first violin generally plays the melody and the highest line of notes. So first you can think about highest. Okay. The second violin supports with the harmony line and that just usually has lower notes. And mm -hmm. it doesn't just have to be two. There doesn't have to, it's not necessarily limited to first and second. There could be third violins, there could be fourth violins. It depends on however many parts the composer feels inspired to write. But I would say that that two parts is generally common for an instrument. Like there'll be at least a first and a second. Just like in singing, you're going to have a melody and you're going to have a harmony. Mm -hmm. You might not necessarily have additional harmonies underneath. One of the first violins, in fact, the leader of the first violins is known as the concertmaster or the first chair of the orchestra. So a few ways to identify the concertmaster when you're at this classical music concert that you're going to. First, the concertmaster is generally going to be seated to the immediate left of the conductor, um, closest to the audience. So front and center, that person, like that's the chair of honor, the, the best place, that's where they will sit. They may also enter separately onto the stage and like shake hands with the conductor when the conductor comes out. So again, it's all about this is an important person. Okay. They get to sit in the best place. They get to come out on their own. When the conductor comes out, they, the conductor shakes hands with one person, the concertmaster. Mm. Um, the concertmaster also leads the tuning, which I will talk about more in a minute what that entails. And um, as the section leader of the violins, the concertmaster will play the violin solos in a piece if there's no guest soloist. They will also demonstrate and lead movements like bowing for the section so mm -hmm. everybody knows when to go up or down. And just general like section management. So if there's some like petty squabbles or whatever, it'll be like, break <laughs> it up, break it up, cool <laughs> off, go back to your corners, think about what you did, that sort of just like team leader dynamics that we all have in our jobs of there's like someone who whether officially or unofficially is kind of the person who makes decisions and and keeps the team cohesive okay so i have a quick question um is the concert master usually if not always a violin 
In my experience, yes. Okay. That's, that's like, it, you know, we, we say like all instruments are equal. That is not really true. Like the <laughs> violins, that's why there's the most violins in an mm. orchestra. That's why a lot of the the main melodies or the main most important parts of a piece are played by the violins. Just through tradition and, and in classical music, the violin is the quote unquote most important instrument. So the most important violin is the most important like person of the orchestra, the leader. Okay. Ooh, okay. Good to know. Mm. Yeah. Not that that, um, f- you know, fosters any discontent amongst yeah, the bet. rest of us <laughs> in the orchestra. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. But, you know, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> non violinists, let's unite and maybe <laughs> be a coup. Maybe- yeah. <laughs> From the clarinets. <laughs> First clarinet making a making a move. Yeah. The, the nerdiest, most organized coup ever. <laughs> Just sort of quietly shoot daggers at the, the violins. You guys know what you did. Okay, let's talk about tuning. Mm. These days, tuning begins when the oboe plays an A note. Now let me break that down. First of all, why the oboe? Yeah. Mm. The oboe plays the tuning note because oboes have been part of the orchestra for a long time. Like historically, the oboe as an instrument was developed very early. Also, just for a, like a logistical purpose, the oboe has a really piercing tone. So it's very easy to hear, like a bagpipe, like that sort of, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. like very easy to hear that when you're on the stage and there's, you know, audience members are filing in and talking and people are noodling around on their instruments and stuff. That shrill oboe note just kind of cuts everything down mm. and really helps people realize, oh, oh, we're getting started here. So it, it's really as much a historical reason as it is a logistical reason. Now, I mentioned that the oboe plays an A note. Why an A note? It's an A note because every stringed instrument has an A string. So it's easy for them to hone in on that pitch. And I don't play a stringed instrument, so I don't know exactly what that entails. Mm -hmm. But having an A string apparently makes an A note a good one to have. Um, A good bit of trivia about this is that the specific note used by United States orchestras is called an A440. Um, And I don't want to dig too much into the science. The 440 means 440 hertz, blah, 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 science. I'm sure that people who know science understand that, you know, like an A440 is technically different from an A439 or an A438. Mm -hmm. But I have had trivia questions asked, like, you know, what note, what specific note, you know, Mm. these, when at my pub trivia, when the the person asks, like, what is the note? And you think, oh, it's an A note. And then she'll say, be specific. And I'll say, that means they want us to say A440 and not just. (laughs) A. Aha. Wow. I got it. (laughs) So how does tuning actually work? Well, in theory, everyone in the orchestra has a really good ear, right? And they can just hear by listening whether they are in tune with both A440, the absolute pitch, and also with each other. Because it's not just being in tune with the actual note. It's like being in tune with everyone that is around you. Because if you have (laughs) one person who's perfectly in tune and everyone else isn't, that's going to sound bad also. Um, in, in reality, we're not just relying on our ears. We can use technology, right? So the oboist who plays that initial note might have a tuner or a tuning app or some kind of you know, device that shows them whether they are exactly on pitch. Mm-hmm. And then the other players are just going to match the oboe. And again, if the oboe is on pitch and other players are matching the oboe, everyone is mm-hmm. going to be on pitch. 
Those other players may also have their own tuners, right? So they are looking at that and just getting additional information from the technology. We have the technology to figure out, is everybody in tune? And I have to admit, like, this is a safe space. When I was in high school band and we tuned, I just pretended to hear something. <laughs> I didn't have a tuner. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah, yeah exactly. Play a note. Oh, okay. Wiggle my clarinet a little bit. Oh, now it sounds better to me. I had no <laughs> idea. Is Are there instruments that go out of tune more, more often than others? Like, I, would, I guess I would think, like, okay, like, maybe brass instruments, like, there's not a whole lot of like movement in there for something to go off. But I could see like maybe a violin, like if you, you know, hit that little What's tuner. It? Yeah, that's good. I'm actually, that. You're, you're like perfectly segueing into where oh, I was okay. going next. Ooh, great. So about tuning, like once you're playing whatever instrument you're playing and you figured out that you're out of tune, you need to get in tune. Mm -hmm. And honestly, every instrument gets out of tune. It doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't it absolutely does not mean that you're bad if uh -huh. you're out of tune. That's just how instruments work. Okay. Because it can be like related to temperature, humidity, oh, the yeah. passage of time, whatever. There's tons of reasons. And so even the professionals go out of tune mm -hmm. and have to make adjustments. And instruments are designed to be adjusted Great. because that's just like that's not a bug that's a feature of how mm -hmm. instruments work um the piece that you adjust um speaking of like the thing on the violin <laughs> the piece that you adjust will depend on the instrument okay um the rule of thumb is looser longer lower so if you are sharp which means your pitch is too high you need to make it go lower mm -hmm. so you need to make something on your instrument either looser or longer. Oh. So on a stringed instrument, like a violin, you adjust those tuning pegs, which are mm -hmm. the things at the, the curly Q end of the violin, which is probably not the technical name, but the, the <laughs> I call it the curly Q end. It makes sense um, to me. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it works. Everybody knows what I mean. So again, violinists deal with it. <laughs> yeah. We got yeah, we're not luthiers. <laughs> Get over yourselves. It's not a cabal and it's not rocket science. So I'll call it the, you know, curly Q curly end Q if I want. End. So on a stringed instrument, you adjust the, the tuning pegs and you're loosening the tension on the strings. Looser means lower. Okay. On a wind instrument, um, you would adjust the length of the tube that the wind is going through somehow. So the listeners aren't going to be able to see this. But I'm holding up my clarinet. And on the clarinet, you adjust the length of the tube by pulling out this bit at the top oh. to make the tube a little bit longer. And again, longer is going to make it go lower. Um, I think on brass instruments, they have tuning valves that okay. they can adjust. And again, you're you're wanting to make something you know, a looser, longer, lower, or to make it higher, you want to make it tighter or shorter or make other adjustments um, because going out of tune happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. It happens to everybody. It's not a big deal, okay? It's not a big deal. <laughs> I should point out that a lot of what you imagine when you think about someone sounding like really awful on an instrument um, versus someone sounding great has nothing to do with being in tune. It actually has to do more with like tone and technique. So if you listen to me playing a cello, 
and then you listen to Yo-Yo Ma playing a cello, he would obviously sound a lot better than I do mm-hmm. um, for, well, for many reasons. But it's not necessarily because he's in tune and I'm out of tune. It's because oh, he sure. knows how to play the cello, right? He knows how to hold it. He knows how to hold the bow and apply pressure to the strings. And he knows what the curly cue end of the cello was actually called. <laughs> like he has all of this information and practice at playing the cello. You could give him a cello that's completely out of tune and he would still make it work, Tim Gunn mm-hmm. style. Whereas you could give me a, you know, beautifully exquisite, perfectly in tune cello and it would sound like a travesty because mm-hmm. I have no idea how to hold it. So I, I just want to like hammer home the idea that in tune doesn't mean it's going to sound great mm-hmm. and out of tune doesn't mean it's going to sound horrible. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're wrapping up the overview of the orchestra section um, of, of this, but what I do want to talk about on the end note is applause. When do you clap? When do you not clap? Yes. Because I feel like people get very hoity-toity about this, mm-hmm. and they, they really don't need to. Again, everyone, unclench. Let's, <laughs> let's open our arms to the populace and not be so stuffy about classical music. Um, so general advice on clapping First, I would say follow the crowd, because if you're going to an orchestra concert, there's probably a lot of people there who go all the time, who know like what the custom is and what the piece of music is and when you're supposed to clap. So if you see other people clapping, you can probably clap too. Like that's when it's safe to clap, right? (laughs) I would also suggest that you clap anytime someone comes on or off the stage, whether that's, we talked about the concert master, Mm -hmm. that first violin comes on, the conductor will come on. If there's a solo soloist, they will come on, clap when they come on, clap when they leave, just to like show respect for those quote unquote special people. Um, Another good tip when it comes to applause is to watch the conductor. If his or her arms are raised, it's not over. Like the music Mm -hmm. is still going. They Mm -hmm. might just be taking a beat. They might be being doing like a dramatic pause Mm -hmm. or something. So don't start clapping because they're probably about to like go again. Wait until the the conductor will lower their arms. The people will like lower their instruments and relax a little bit. That's when they're taking a real like stop in the music. And that's when it's safer to to clap because like the piece has ended at that point. But I mean, honestly, it's not, it's not like, breaking the law to clap when you know other people aren't clapping or whatever and no musician is going to say oh please don't clap oh please stop clapping <laughs> yeah how stop dare you clap <laughs> for my beautiful music that i have just played for you mm-hmm. that's so very that was- helpful yeah okay. that's very helpful because there have definitely been times where i have and again i I, especially now with the pandemic i don't have an internal monologue anymore <laughs> it just doesn't happen so i'll be like is it is it time to clap should i is this now should I do it now? Like, <laughs> it's just, no. Okay. So it's better, obviously, to maybe pay attention to what's going on out front. So thank you. I appreciate I, telling, <laughs> telling us. Yeah. It's like with like, what is the etiquette of the Zoom call? And everyone's like, when do we hit the leave meeting button? Like, we've all yeah. got this new etiquette about Zoom calls and, you know, teleconferences and working from home. So this is just a little bit of like some of the etiquette of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you go, there's going to be a lot of, you know, classy, judgy people there. But also... You know, plenty of people who just want to have a good time, want to mm-hmm. listen to some music. Um, and, and you know, I don't I want everyone to feel included because, yes. you know, that's what we're here for. Music bringing people together. Absolutely. 
So let me um, segue into part two, which is a, a Cliff's Cliff's Notes version of classical music history, because there's obviously a lot of it, hundreds of years worth of it. But I kind of want to hit just a few of the key eras today, um, the ones that I think come up very frequently in orchestra concerts that you will be likely to hear music from if you go. Because, you know, there's a lot of like renaissance and obscure music that you're just not going to hear. Yeah. Um, so it, it's all important, but I can't cover it all. Um, it, we're, it's not going to be a marathon misinformation episode, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it keep it contained um, to to tell you about some of the key things that you might hear and and clap for or not clap for, but also clap for when you go to a concert. So. I'm going to talk about name and era. I'm going to give you the the time frame that that era took place. Um, mention some key composers, and then talk about like characteristics of the music during that period and where the orchestra was in its development. So that just kind of gives you a framework for how I'm going to hit these eras. Great. Great. Let's start with the Baroque era. One of the one of everyone everyone's punny like favorite. Don't mm -hmm. go for Baroque. Yep, all of that. Baroque. So the time period here, 1600 to 1750. Famous Baroque composers include Bach, Vivaldi, and Handel, whom you have probably heard of, even mm -hmm. if you couldn't necessarily identify their music. Key characteristics of Baroque music are basso continuo and counterpoint, which I know is a lot to swallow. So let me talk you through some examples. Let's use Pachelbel's Canon in D as an example of Baroque music. Pachelbel's Canon in D has a basso continuo that goes like this. Okay, so that string of notes, the basso continuo, repeats over and over for the entire piece, right? Mm -hmm. It's basso continuo, it continues. It just goes over and over and over, and it's sort of the foundation that all the other stuff is laid on top of. Mm. So basso continuo, that's a Baroque thing. The other Baroque cool. thing is counterpoint. What is counterpoint? Counterpoint, technically the definition is counterpoint is the relationship between melodies that are harmonically related but rhythmically independent. That was so much I couldn't even get through saying it without <laughs> taking a breath. So what all of those words mean is the idea that these melodies all sound good when they're played together at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's what harmonically related means. You can play them all together and they sound good, but they're rhythmically independent, meaning that they're, they're different melodies. It's not just the same note or just notes in a chord played all in the same rhythm. They've got lots of different things going on. So we talked about, we just like listened to one of the melody lines from Canon and D, the basso continuo. Um, another bit of melody about the same length as the basso continuo sounds like this. Okay, so that one is harmonically related and rhythmically related, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same rhythm, it's just different notes. So if you put together the basso continuo that we heard first, and then the melody that we just listened to, it would sound like this.
Now, to to sort of give the full picture, here's one more melody. This one is rhythmically independent, but it's gonna sound it's still gonna sound good when they're played together. Spoiler alert. This is a so this is the third melody that we have heard from Canon. Now, I don't know if this is the technical term, but that sounds faster to me. (laughs) Good job, Julia. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) Well, it has a lot more notes, a lot more movement. Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely thinking, oh, there's more going on here. Uh And and yeah, you're definitely, I mean, it could totally be faster because I recorded all of these myself and I am always playing things too fast. (laughs) But um, I used a metronome to make sure that I wouldn't do that. And so I'm going to like to think slash assume slash hope that they're all actually the same tempo, but because there's more notes, it sounds faster, Mm -hmm. a little bit of an optical illusion. So we heard three different melodies. And if you put them all together, even though they're each individual things, they should, in the theory of Baroque music, all sound good together as a good example of counterpoint. So let's put them all together. so interesting because I whenever I've heard that piece uh, it always sounds to me and granted I don't have a musical background at all um, it always sounds to me like two parts like there's a melody and then there's a bass line that's running through and that's it but that there's so many other layers to it is fascinating it definitely like the more you listen to it and I think sort of study it or just be aware of it, the more like layers of the onion that you peel mm-hmm. away when you listen to one of these songs. I mean, I, I think of a Baroque song kind of like a, an all-star team in basketball. Like it's all these super talented melodies coming together, like super talented players on the all-star team. And they're all really, really good. But then when you bring them together, you're like, yes, <laughs> I love that. That's a very good analogy I think the dream team yeah the dream team Mm -hmm. yes yes and and you know another way to think about it is that baroque music to me it doesn't necessarily have a clear like beginning and an end like it just it's like a kaleidoscope like remember you turn the kaleidoscope and it's all just the pieces are all remixing and coming back in and out and um um you know like the violins will play something and then the trumpets will play it and then you'll sing it and then I'll sing it like it's all just kind of going around and around the um the hallelujah chorus is another example of that mm. to me right like they're singing hallelujah and then we're singing it and then the ladies are singing it and then the guys are singing it it just keeps going <laughs> over and over and over and part of that is the counterpoint that like everything sounds together you just keep remixing it and bringing mm-hmm. in new melodies as long as they're the right chords even if they have all these different like rhythms and and movement or it's a lot of notes or a few notes it just all sounds together if you keep taking different slices and putting them together that's cool i love that so that's the music in the broke period the orchestra in the Baroque period was a lot smaller than our orchestras today. Mm-hmm. So it was more like a chamber orchestra. Remember, we talked about chamber orchestras, right. smaller group fitting in one room. Um, there weren't actually a lot of standards for the orchestra when it came to like the size or what instruments were in it. 
Um, and a lot of instruments at this time in history were still gaining popularity. Like you wouldn't have a clarinet because the clarinet hadn't been invented yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the orchestra looked different just because it was still sort of early in history mm -hmm. for classical music and for the orchestra. Um, that said, if you went to an orchestra concert in the Baroque era, um, you probably would have heard something that involved vocal parts, like a, a cantata or an oratorio, which is just a, a big cantata. And cantata just means to sing in Italian. Mm -hmm. So it would have been... Um, a composition that had both instruments, but also a lot of singers. Um, there was also a lot of churchy music. We talked about the Hallelujah Chorus, right? So Handel's Messiah, that's another great example of Baroque music because like you're not necessarily in a church, you're at an orchestra concert, but you're still hearing music that has a very strong religious or biblical theme. So, you know, we play Handel's Messiah at Christmas time, but the piece actually premiered in spring. It premiered in April of 1740 because it covers a lot more than the Christmas story in the mm. full piece. There's all sorts of other parts of the of the Bible um, and of the, the Jesus narrative. So even though we think of it now as a Christmas piece, there's all sorts of stuff. And so they would have played it at all different times throughout the year, potentially. And that just would have been a thing that you did in the Baroque era. Um, by the way, when I was researching this, I learned that Handel wrote the Messiah in 24 days. Oh, my God. I mean, you know what I did in the last 24 days? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I think I maybe read a book. I don't even remember it. You know, I looked like, out the window for a while, like I ate a lot of cheese. That was my last 24 days. So wow. amazing. What am I doing? Jeez. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so if you think about the Messiah or the canon that we played earlier, it, it's the Baroque music hallmarks of constant repetition, multiple melodies all going on at the same time, potentially a religious theme, boom, that's mm. Baroque music. So if you go to a concert and they say, we're going to play Baroque music, you know a little bit of what you're probably going to be hearing. Great. Okay. Baroque check one era down next era of classical music is the classical era. And I know what you're thinking wait a minute, isn't this whole thing about classical music? And the answer is yes. However, also, there is a specific time period within classical music history called the classical era. Uh, time frame here, 1750s to 1820s. Okay. And this is the era of your Mozart, your Beethoven, your stereotypical big symphonic pieces. Uh, the classical era is known for use of a single melody with accompaniment rather than the counterpoint of the Baroque era where you had the all-star players who are all equally good. In the classical era, you have sort of the you know Gladys Knight and the Pips idea of you have one supreme melody and then sort of backup accompanying um, pieces. Mm -hmm. um, the classical era also known for increased use of musical dynamics and phrasing, which I will explain mm -hmm. because I realize I'm using a lot of technical terms here. So let's talk about a piece from the classical music era, the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. That is the song, the, I'm sure you've probably heard it, it's a song that starts like this. the introduction, the melody of the song actually goes um, part of it like this. 
So if you think about the melody as like the superstar of the team, the accompaniment, the the harmonies are going to back it up. And when you put them together, they sound like this. That's so wild because when you played that melody by itself, it didn't sound like anything, like mm-hmm. not nothing, but you know what I mean? Like it didn't, it wasn't recognizable. It seemed like there was a lot of, lot of like rests in between. And yeah. then when you hear it with the, oh God, the harmony part, it the was accompaniment. like, yes, the accompaniment. Suddenly it's like, oh, that's the star. Of course, that's the melody. Yeah, the accompaniment boosts up the the melody. It makes it sound better. It's like it's more recognizable. Because, yeah, if you just had the melody by itself, you're kind of thinking, is that it? Like, where's yeah. the <laughs> other stuff? Yeah. So classical music, again, Gladys Knight and the Pips, like there's a superstar, you know, lead singer, but also all of the backup stuff that mm-hmm. makes it sound even better. I mentioned that in addition to that use of the the melody and accompaniment, the classical era is known for increased use of musical dynamics and phrasing. So in the Baroque era, um, the musicians' choices about things like volume and tempo were pretty much improvised by the performer, and they were mm-hmm. often very boring. Like the the there's not a lot of speeding up and slowing down in Baroque. Not a lot of like louder and softer. Just kind of constant volume, constant pacing. You know, you could set your watch by it in the Baroque era a lot of times, but in the classical era, composers started writing explicit instructions in the music about when to slow down, when to hold a note, when to do like a decorative little wiggle or whatever. Um, And this actually was really more of a practical thing because in the classical era, there were more and more performances where the composer wasn't actually there in the audience or conducting the orchestra. Mm. And therefore like saying, okay, I know because I wrote this song when you need to be loud, I will just tell you or show you to be loud. Well, in the classical era, there were, you know, a lot of composers writing things and then just sending them out to be played. And so the composer realized, oh, they're not going to know to be loud unless I tell them. So I Mm -hmm. should write a little thing in the music to tell them to be loud here. I have never once thought about that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when the orchestra was first coming together, it was a little more like a casual, right? And small. The garage band. Yeah, there was a lot more things that you could just like do on the fly. Mm-hmm. But as things got more formalized and larger and and stuff, they needed to figure out like more of a system of like we should write things down. I think we've all had those those moments when we realize we should probably start writing down how we do this thing. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Totally. Now, thinking from the perspective of what the orchestra would be doing during the classical era, this, this, like I said, was the golden time when everything came together. The instruments that make up the orchestra become standardized. Um, composers are writing symphonies, which, as we mentioned earlier, like that's the, the type of music that gives the symphony orchestra its name. And to, to briefly explain what a symphony is, in a simple sense, a symphony is made of four parts, which are sometimes also called movements. And the general format of the 
the movements of a symphony is the first one is bold and dramatic. So think of Beethoven's fifth, right? Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. It grabs you and sort of is meant to like suck you in to the, to the music. The second movement um, of a symphony is kind of slow and lyrical. It lets you relax, catch your breath again. The third movement is um, usually something called a minuet and a tree, a minuet and trio, which is like a dance and triple times, like a da 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 da. And then um, with a third movement, I imagine like at, in a Jane Austen novel, like the people are lined up in two lines and like mm-hmm. they're facing each other mm-hmm. and they're bowing and then they're dancing like with each other. That's to me, that's that's minuet and trio. That's third movement. Um, and then the fourth and final movement of a symphony is fast and heroic and sort of ties everything together, brings you back to that first movement, dun, 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 excitement. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously variations in symphonies and in movements, but that's kind of the general structure is it's sort of an arc that like starts exciting quiets down builds back up and then ends exciting again okay cool that is the classical era so check that one off your list nice classical down. classical music yes Love it. classical era of classical music it doesn't get much more classical so continuing through our classical music eras, the next one on the list is the Romantic period. Ooh. So time period uh, 1800-ish to 1910-ish. And as with romanticism in art uh, literature, romantic music is all about evoking emotion. So you're using extreme notes and volume. You're, you're just getting people like hot and bothered. So, you know, mm-hmm. imagine... The romantic composer, this is your your Chopin, your Mendelssohn, like the, the hair is must, the, the shirt collar is mm-hmm. open, you know, they're sitting at the piano, scribbling furiously, pining after a lover. That's romantic music. Mm-hmm. Okay, speaking of lovers, let's talk about the Schumanns, Robert and Clara. Like this, mm. this is my drunk history episode proposal, which <laughs> I'm going to skim the surface of because I feel like this is a story that needs to be heard. So Robert Schumann, born in Germany, 1810. He takes piano as a kid. He's he's okay. He's not great. Um, partially that has to do apparently with um, some kind of finger problem that was caused by like two, two possible um, causes that people are think, thinking caused it. One is some weird like finger stretching device that he tried because sure that was going to work. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's like he there, got out there, of the back of a magazine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess there were infomercials back then too. Okay, Robert. Um, mm-hmm. Also the, the possible cause of, of the problem was um, everyone's favorite venereal disease. Say it with me now. Syphilis. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for so, the cue card, Heather. <laughs> my pleasure. So there, there was, there was, there was, there were things. There were things going on with him. Anyway, he falls in love with his piano teacher's daughter, um, whose name was Clara, and she's a renowned pianist. So, like, here's an example of ladies doing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, she was mm-hmm. phenomenal at playing the piano. Um, they ended up getting married in 1840, the day before she turned 21, so they wouldn't have to get her father's consent, which, you know, that was a choice, even early on in the relationship. I'm like, Clara, girl, okay, so they get married. She continues going on tour. Again, she's an amazing piano player. She's touring. She's having babies. She's going back on tour after having babies. She had eight 
children. Oh, eight children. She's continuing to tour. She's raising kids. Um, he is like back on the ranch composing, slowly losing his mind due to, you know, the finger stretching device also or possibly the syphilis. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so he's just, you know, doing whatever. Um, he passes away at age 46 in oh 1856. She keeps touring because she's got all these kids to support. Mm -hmm. And again, famous piano piano player. So she's traveling. She's teaching piano. She's trying to make money. Like she is hustling. And all that time, she's taking the high road and saying, hey, my husband wrote a bunch of music. I think it's really good. You all should like play this music more. Y'all need to like get to know this music. Um, She, you know, I would be super bitter and be like, he's, you know me with all of this and mm-hmm. what, what good did you ever do for me man but no she's just trying to like burnish his image and get people more into his music and like the reason that people know his music today is largely due to her continued influence because again she was a super skilled musician very highly respected very popular mm-hmm. and when that she was like celebrity endorsing her own dead husband's syphilitic husband's music, which was <laughs> a very generous gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my own favorite pieces from the romantic era is a Schumann piece called Trumerai, which sounds like this. So that was the whole thing. You can edit that down because I'm realizing as I'm listening to it, boy, it's really long. But anyway, it's that whole feeling of like, oh, we're, you know, romanticism of, Mm -hmm. oh, I feel really good. And oh, it gets scary in this part. Oh, but now I feel better at the end. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, It's very sweet. It has a very, yeah, it's a very like lovely, sweet sound. A hopeful Mm -hmm. feeling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so now you know a little bit more about the guy that wrote that and his awesome wife. <laughs> he died in 1896 at the age of 76. And I feel like may she rest in peace. Absolutely. May she rest. 
Um, another thing in the Romantic period was a rise in nationalism in music. So mm-hmm. you've got um, things like Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, right, where you've got cannons, you've got church bells, you've got what my um, college roommate would call going to war kind of music. Like it's very rousing and it's often related to some event in a nation's history or some great patriotic cause, um, which is just sort of another trend in music. And I don't have a good music clip there because it's not really written for solo piano, which is what I was reporting <laughs> on. If you imagine a big orchestra piece where they've got, like I said, cannons and church bells mm-hmm. and everyone's going crazy. That was another popular thing in romantic music. The anvil yeah. chorus, maybe. Yes. Uh, a thing that I, yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about like how art movements and musical movements were coinciding because it was all part of the same like thing. But I think of the romantics as like, Casper David Friedrich, who is a a painter who um, is, you know, you can make direct ties to, you know, like the rise of Nazism much, much later because he was a German nationalist who was painting paintings that were very, you know, evocative of like an idealized time of Germany and like German people and how, you know, like the nation of Germany is great and we should go back to like loving ourselves and, and, you know, doing good. And his, obviously his, uh, motives were pure, (laughs) but you think of Caspar David Friedrich and Wagner music go really hand in hand. It's around that same time, time period. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are all artistic pursuits, right? Yes, Whether it's exactly. painting or music or whatever. And so that sort of spirit of the time mm-hmm. is is going to dominate a lot of art forms. Mm-hmm. Liberty Leading the People by yes. Delacroix. That's around that time, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That whole like, remember this battle that we won that was great? Or remember this time when we really came together as a people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the Romantic period, the orchestra um, grew larger. So we talked about it having sort of its golden era in the classical period. But in the Romantic period, it got like bigger from just more sound, more instruments. Some of the new instruments during this time were the piccolo, which is the little tiny flute, um, the snare drum, the triangle, which is one of my favorites. (laughs) Like we were just sort of gilding the lily in the Romantic period Mm -hmm. to really bring it into what it is today. Lauren and I might be really good at playing the triangle. We just don't know yet i've just never tried i might be a, a prodigy you know never you, touched one you don't know that you're not good at it exactly. absolutely yeah mm-hmm. so that's romantic the romantic period so check that one off mm-hmm. and last but not least of the ones that i'm going to bring bring us to and and really what brings us to today is 20th century music which is kind of the everything that came after era like Mm -hmm. no one knows quite have we moved on to a new one are we still in the 20th century even though it's 2020 but uh, I'm gonna call it 20th century music it's one of the terms that we call it um the orchestra at this point obviously is really what we know it as today Mm -hmm. um we're kind of at now when we get to 20th century music um a a component of the music style in 20th century that I want to talk about is impressionist so we're talking about art right um as with art Impressionist music was about conveying a mood. So the prototypical example for me here is uh, the song Claire de Lune by Debussy, which goes like this.
can't like, yeah, you can't really point to, oh, this is the melody mm-hmm. or whatever, but you're like relaxed and you're you're thinking peaceful thoughts. Or like if you're in my demo, you're imagining a, a team of thieves at the Bellagio Fountain in Las Vegas, <laughs> having just successfully robbed Terry Benedict's casinos. Yes. Mm. Reminiscing over the the cape the heist that they had just pulled. That that might just be specific to my demo. But you know, it's sort of it's a mood. It's a whole mood, mm-hmm. as the kids would say, right? Absolutely. We talked about nationalism, which continues to play a part in 20th century music, um, as does an increasing influence of an American style of classical music. So these are your pieces like George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, um, Aaron Copland's Fanfare for the Common Man, um, the kind of music that, you know, plays in a Western as the camera like sweeps across the plains and you've got this Mm -hmm. rousing like giddy up sort of music. That's your American classical music really coming to the fore. Uh, This is also where classical music starts to mingle with jazz. Mm -hmm. So that's another uniquely American art form. Um, For more on jazz, check out Misinformation Episode 81, Three Stories About Jazz. It's very good. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) You're even doing the research for us. Thank you. Homework. (laughs) And that that really catches us up to now. So, you know, I, I presented it in very clear cut periods, but obviously in real life, there's never like a clean break between mm-hmm. eras in these movements. So it's not like they said, oh, it's 1750. We're going to stop using counterpoint and we're going to mm-hmm. start doing the classical era. You know, there was sort of a gradual phasing out of certain things and a phasing in of other things. And there are plenty of composers who straddle two eras and are kind of doing things that are in both eras, incorporating elements of both in their work. Um, but I do hope you're now a little better prepared both to go to the orchestra and understand what you're seeing and also know a little bit more about what you might be hearing. Amazing. That was so wonderful, Heather. That was so great. That was, I learned so much. It was profoundly entertaining. I, I'm so excited. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Oh, I do have a question. And if you, if this isn't even a real question, we can edit this out, but I have always wondered why a lot of, and this is not, this is a blanket statement. This is obviously not for in every case, but I've always noticed that classical music, the the song tends to end on a major note, like ba-ba. And I noticed that jazz tends to end on a minor note, like ba-da. So I've always wondered like, why is it just because it's different? It just means, does it mean like there's more to come? You know what I mean? Like a minor note gives like a much different feeling than a major note. Major seems like, okay, and now we're done. And so much of jazz is like playing around with that, that I just was wondering why that's the case, I guess. I I think my um, only semi-educated take on that would be that classical music is a lot more formal and so it seeks to have resolution what's called resolution Mm. at the end of the piece which is yeah ending on a a major note or the chord uh, in a formal chord it doesn't like fade out it just like Mm -hmm. has a distinct ending and it also doesn't have as much um i'm gonna use a, a technical term here accidentals which are like sharps and flats and like sort of in in the strictest sense of the word accidentals break the rules of the key mm. when you're playing okay. music whereas with jazz 
it's like, yeah, improvise, use, use all the keys on the keyboard, do whatever you want. There's more freedom. There's less rules. Mm-hmm. But in classical music, it's much more buttoned up and straight laced and mm-hmm. sometimes overly like formal. And so the idea that you would end with an accidental with a minor note with the quote unquote wrong chord would be very anathema and sort of forbidden. Mm-hmm. Whereas in jazz, there was more experimentation and saying, let's do just what feels good, guys. Yeah. And so that that's kind of my take on just the two different types or styles or approaches to how to play music and how to end music. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. I have definitely had my dad's a jazz fan. And so he he and I have definitely when we've gone to jazz concert with with my mother been like, yeah, like when he goes, ba-da, but then there's ba-da, and like doing that back and forth. And at one point, my mother being like, OK, shut up. Like it's, <laughs> the song is like going like stop singing at each other. <laughs> We're like 10 and a half feet away from the guy who's singing. Stop it. Anyway. <laughs> That was a very good critical take. Like, that's a good way to think through, like, what you're hearing and then ask questions about it. So, no, I applaud that that. curiosity. Thank you. And I I thank you for your answer. That that helps. I'm learning so much on this Sunday. Thank you, Heather. So I, I believe you have a quiz for us. That's what I hear. I do. So we talked a lot about musicians and um, in the classical era, they're not improvising so much, but a, a music, good musical skill as a player is the ability to play something by ear. So I have prepared for you a quiz called Playing It By Ear, a quiz about plays and ears. Question number one. Let's stop horsing around. In the Tennessee Williams play, What legendary creature in the glass menagerie gets broken? Question number two. The human ear contains three very tiny bones. In Latin, they are known as the malleus, incus, and stapes. What are their English names? Question number three. You don't need to be in California to get this one. The 1960 Tony for Best Play went to a work that took its title from a quote by Langston Hughes. Finish the quote. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a what? Question number four. Let's talk about a woman with an ear for comedy. From 1967 to 1978, what funny lady ended every episode of her self-titled variety comedy show by tugging on her ear? Question number five. Calling all smash fans. Of what playwright did Marilyn Monroe say, if I were nothing but a dumb blonde, he wouldn't have married me? Question number six. Here's one that combines classical music and ears, sort of. The eardrum is also known as the Moringa, or TM. What does TM stand for? Question number seven. To answer or not to answer. Tom Stoppard's play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, fleshes out two minor characters from what Shakespeare play? Question number eight. On June 28, 1997, Two boxers met for a fight, originally billed as The Sound and The Fury. However, it's infamously remembered as the bite fight because one of the boxers bit off part of his opponent's ear. Who bit whom? Question number nine. 
The State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes inspired what 1955 play in which Bertram Cates is on trial for teaching evolution? And question number 10. We'll close the quiz by bringing plays and ears together. One of the most famous lines in Shakespeare is, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Who speaks this line? We will give you about a minute to think about it and then we'll be back with your answers. This is a great quiz. This is a wonderful quiz. Wonderful quiz. I expected nothing less from the mental samurai. Exactly. I cannot believe we're, Julia, <laughs> we're taking a quiz from the mental samurai. <laughs> I tried she hasn't to pulled out a sword spirit. yet, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, yet. Um, I have pulled out a clarinet, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to channel your spirit because you always like turn the the topic into like on an angle for the mm -hmm. quiz and I'm like, how, do they, how do they do that how are they doing that and then when you I think Julia you offered like if you need help with ideas for the quiz let us know mm -hmm. and then I was like no I'm gonna do it on my own mom I can do it <laughs> it was great this is perfect this is great all right. all right I'm ready Okay, so question number one. Let's stop horsing around. In the Tennessee Williams play, what legendary creature in the glass menagerie gets broken? Lauren, I, I have an idea. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure. What do you think? I think it's a unicorn. Yes, I think it's a unicorn. Okay. Unicorn. You are, you are correct. It Ooh. is the unicorn. Um, and the, the only thing that I have here for color commentary is that when I was growing up, we had for some reason a couple of glass figurines of like, I don't know, it was like a, a dog and a bear or something. But for some reason, I conflated that with the glass menagerie. And so I was like, oh, that's ours. And I guess <laughs> Tennessee Williams's family also had one of these and he wrote a play about it. That's really cool. And I just assumed like every family in America had a few glass animal figurines. And that was just the thing. Like, you know, when you're a kid and something happens and you're like, oh, that's just how it is for everybody. Yeah, yeah. everybody does this. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're at like friends' <laughs> houses. Like, 
Where's your glass menagerie? <laughs> oh, did you break them yours. all? Yeah. Wow. Bad luck, guys. Mm, too bad. Question number two. The human ear contains three very tiny bones. In Latin, they are known as the malleus, incus, and stapes. What are their English names? You got it, Lauren. I think it's the stirrup, anvil, and hammer. That is correct. You know which is which. The the malleus is the hammer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like mallet or malleable. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The stapes is the stirrup. Yes, I remember yeah. that thinking the S's go together mm-hmm. is my mnemonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so the last one is the anvil. <laughs> yes, the, the incus is the anvil, the other mm-hmm. one. Yes, totally. Very good. You know, I don't know why these weren't part of the operation game. You remember that board game oh. operation and he yes. had all his little like parts? Why wouldn't you have something with the ear? Yeah, because it's tiny. Like that should be the hardest part to like operate on the tiny ear bones. Totally. So makers of operation, you're welcome for that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, bonus info there, the patient's name on the board of operation, his name is Cavity Sam. That's his official name. That's, there you, that is there very you good have to it. know. Yep. I feel like that has come up. And that yeah. poor soul. But <laughs> question number three. You don't need to be in California to get this one. The 1960 Tony for best play went to a work that took its title from a quote by Langston Hughes. Finish the quote. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a what? A raisin in, raisin the, sun. in the sun. Raisin yep. in the sun is correct. And my, I, I tried to hint with California. If you remember, like California raisins, was that a yes. something that was like a cartoon oh, or a yeah. claymation something? They were, right? they were claymation in the eighties as like an advertisement for raisins because people were not buying raisins because they're terrible. And yes. then, <laughs> and then they had their own cartoon show on like Saturday morning TV because what else do kids want to watch? You know, you're done with of anthropomorphized <laughs> raisins. Yeah. <laughs> but Lauren and I, we talk about this frequently. Like our very favorite like holiday um, special is the claymation Christmas. And the um, the California raisins show up and they're singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it is, it's a bop. It's jazzy. Ooh, yeah. It's a great song. Probably my favorite Christmas song, honestly. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good. We should watch that this year, Jewel. <laughs> Kids these days don't know what it was. You know, no. they, they're not, they're like, oh, let me turn on Netflix and pop on The Office or something. I was like, when I was your age, Saturday mornings was like produce-centric television, like bananas <laughs> in pajamas, California raisins. It was just various food items fronting mm-hmm. a television show. Yeah. They don't know what it's like. They don't have, I feel bad for them, frankly. Yeah. I feel I mean, bad. I, I'm not saying that, that it was worse or better. I'm just no. saying it was different. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Question number four. Let's talk about a woman with an ear for comedy. From 1967 to 1978, what funny lady ended every episode of her self-titled variety comedy show by tugging on her ear? Is Go ahead, Joel. I think it's Carol Burnett. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it was a signal to her grandmother telling her that she loved her, which oh, I think is very sweet. So sweet. She's hysterical. Carol Burnett is a national treasure uh, still great. funny <laughs> question number five calling all smash fans of what playwright did marilyn monroe say if i were nothing but a dumb blonde he wouldn't have married me i misheard the question the first time so now i'm lost <laughs> 
Um, that's the playwright she married. Um, mm-hmm. His name is? His name is Arthur Miller. Yes, Arthur Miller. Thank you, Joel. Arthur Miller. And I had to get in a smash mention because I, I try to shoehorn them in wherever I can because I enjoyed that show and it may have been the only one. Although I guess they um, did some kind of like get together concert and now it's going back onto Broadway or something. Yeah, saw that. What is that? I don't, are we, that's just where we are now. That's where we are. Everything's a reboot, you know? Everything is, let's get the gang back together, even though we're all in our 60s. Like, you know, maybe not Smash specifically, but like, do we really need a Friends reboot? I don't think so. I think that time has passed. <laughs> it was of its time. Yes. And, like with a lot of things. And I feel like we're just trying to reanimate them. But yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Question number six. Here's one that combines classical music and ears. Sort of. The eardrum is also known as the moringa or TM. What does TM stand for? Oh my God, I literally just got it. Do it. It's the tympanic membrane. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that was a deep dig for old LT. And okay. and the class so the sort of the sort of classical music angle is that tympanic or timpani is a is a type of drum. It's actually a set of drums, usually four drums. They are slightly different sizes, and you can tune them to play a range of notes. So it's not necessarily just one drum that plays one note. You can adjust again, right? Longer, mm-hmm. looser, lower, or tighter, higher to to make it play different pitches, um, as called for in a song. So yes, timpani, tympanic membrane. Very good. Question number seven, to answer or not to answer. Tom Stoppard's play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, fleshes out two minor characters from what Shakespeare play? I think it's going to be Hamlet. Yeah, that was my guess. Hamlet is always a good guess. It is the correct one in this case. <laughs> yes, it is Hamlet. And I was looking at the um, spark notes. Um, which is like Cliff's notes for the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead to see if there's any good trivia. And I found this description um, of the play, which is witty, playful, sly, sarcastic, bleak, angst-ridden. And I thought to myself, that kind of sums up my my mo like my moment, <laughs> my mood these days. How yeah, we doing? How good. we doing, Heather? Vibe check. Bleak and angst-ridden, <laughs> as for you. Oh, I hear that. I hear that. Question number eight. On June 28th, 1997, two boxers met for a fight originally billed as the Sound and the Fury. However, it's infamously remembered as the Bite Fight because one of the boxers bit off part of his opponent's ear. Who bit whom? I I think that was uh, Mike Tyson Mm -hmm. bit Evander Holyfield. Yes. Correct on both counts. Yes, boxer trivia can be tricky for me to remember, like, you mm-hmm. know, Rumble in the Jungle or Thrill in Manila, who was mm-hmm. involved, who won. Yeah. There's just like a lot of, of notable fights that I can never keep straight. Yeah. Question number nine. The state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes inspired what 1955 play in which Bertram Cates is on trial for teaching evolution? Um, Julia, I'm going to let you take this one because I know it's the Scopes Monkey Trial, but mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of the play to save my life. Uh, I believe it's Inherit the Wind. Ooh. 
it is Inherit the Wind. And Lauren, I absolutely just think of like Scope's Monkey Trial, period. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not what the play was called, yeah. <laughs> funnily <laughs> enough. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that would be, you know, it would make a lot of sense. You know, like, you know exactly what this play is going to be about, but. Yeah. No one asked me. <laughs> These days it would be like, come see Inherit the Wind, hashtag Scopes Monkey Trial. If yeah, you've exactly. seen the play, tweet at hashtag Scopes Monkey <laughs> Trial Play. And question number 10. We'll close the quiz by bringing plays and ears together. One of the most famous lines in Shakespeare is, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Who speaks this line? I mean, my assumption would be Julius Caesar. I'll go with that. You're going to go with that? Okay. Well, the next line is, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. So now that you know that, who would speak that line? Brutus? Mark Antony. Antony. It's Mark Antony. Yes, yes. So the Caesar, of course, is Julius Caesar. And the person who says that line is Mark Antony. Oh, man. Jennifer Lopez's ex-husband and the guy who's saying, I need to know. (laughs) He's just everywhere. Yep, it comes up. Yeah, <laughs> but very, very good job. Oh both my of you. gosh! Thanks. Thanks. That was a wonderful quiz and a uh, wonderful topic. Heather, we should have you on every week. I mean, honestly, <laughs> that I, was I, great. We'll come back. I'll, I'll. You'll never be able to get rid of me. So <laughs> love it. I was so excited. Oh my gosh! Um, thank you so much. Thank you for all of the work that you put into this. Thank you for playing us um, some lovely music. We totally appreciate it. Um, thank you to our listeners for listening. Uh, we, uh, you know, we please follow Heather on, on Twitter. She's very funny. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks Heather. And thanks to our listeners and Jewel, we got anything else? No, I got nothing. Okay, great. Thanks so much for listening guys. (laughs) We'll catch you all next time. And thanks again, Heather. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye.